Chapter 27 from verse 41 and we'll read right to chapter 28 verse 22. The word of God where it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older brother what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. But when your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aaron, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Paddan Aaron, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learnt that Jacob had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aaron to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realised how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mathalah, the sister of Nebaioth, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
Earlier the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of you give me, sorry, and all of that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for uh, your word to us. And uh, Lord, we ask that as we come to it now, that you would uh, speak to us, that you would open our hearts and our ears so that we might hear you speaking to us, calling us uh, in the gospel to your beloved son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Uh, I don't know if it's still true, but <clears throat> the shows that I used to watch when I was growing up, uh, in all of them, there always seemed to be somebody who would, uh, the, kind of the worst nightmare, the, the worst action that a child could take uh, in, in uh, all those shows was that the child would run away from home. So whether it was uh, a show like Growing Pains, I don't know if anyone remembers these shows, Growing Pains or Family Ties uh, or Punky Brewster. Does anyone remember Punky Brewster? Showing my age here. The Fridge episode, does anyone remember that? Uh, uh, Well, there's those shows and even, dare I say it, Home and Away in the early days. uh, Look, it was on at five o'clock in the afternoon. It was much more acceptable then. But in all those shows, I can still have, I have vague recollections of kids running away from home. Things had got so desperate that, that was their, they felt that that was their last option. They were left lonely, afraid, uh, far away from their family, and their family was desperately concerned about what had happened to them. And the statistics, I think, if you look around, uh, if, you, if you listen to the government agencies and, and the welfare agencies, if you listen to what people are saying, those realities are not restricted to television shows. There are loads of people, an embarrassingly large number of people, uh, living on the streets because they've run away from family, Uh, and even people who are not living on the streets, Uh, people who have got to a point where they have broken off all contact uh, with their own family for one reason or another. Well, how encouraging it is, I think, then, to discover that those same realities are betrayed in the Bible. The Bible records real situations of families who suffered the same things. Among the people of God, there are stories of families that are so mucked up that children run away from parents. And that's what we have here in Genesis 28, uh, 27 and 28. Jacob's not a child, he's not even a teenager, he's actually a full-grown man. But he has to run away from home and from everybody who knows him and loves him. The events of this passage 
follow on from the things that we were looking at last week. If you weren't here last week or if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, in the passage that we looked at last week, Jacob, the younger of two twins, tricked his father into giving him the inheritance rather than giving the inheritance to his older brother Esau. And as a result, Esau, who's been completely diddled, is now so angry, so furious, that he wants to kill his own brother Jacob. Luckily, their mother finds out about Esau's plans and she arranges for Jacob to go far away. And when she plans for him to go far away, she really means far, far away. The the place where Jacob is going is at about 700 kilometres, maybe 800 kilometres away from where the family was. It would take about three weeks of pretty determined travelling to get there. Rebecca promises to call Jacob back when Esau's anger has subsided, but that day never comes. Never in her lifetime does she see her son again. It will be 20 years before Jacob comes back to meet his older brother. And by that time, both his parents have died. Jacob and Rebecca reap the consequences of their deceit. God shows in this chapter that he is committed to Jacob. He, he's committed to, to, to looking after Jacob, but that doesn't mean that Jacob isn't going to suffer the consequences of what he's done. The evil way that he's treated his brother has consequences for him and for his whole family. And God doesn't short-circuit that. God doesn't say, well, it's okay, just forget about that, we're all friends. Now, God actually uses those consequences to teach Jacob, to change Jacob to be a man who trusts in, him, in, in uh, God rather than a man who trusts in himself. You see, it's important for us to understand that while God's forgiveness means that we don't suffer judgment in eternity, it doesn't mean that we don't experience the fatherly discipline of God now. God often uses the consequences of our sin to train us and to teach us. It might be that our eyes are bigger than our stomach, so to speak, and we get ourselves into, into significant debt. And God just doesn't just wave a magic wand and, and that, that disappears. But he teaches us the hard way. Not to be greedy, not to spend what we don't have. It might be that we lie about something and the truth is eventually discovered. But we still have to live with the consequences of people year after year not trusting us. Oh, you know, you know, Bob, you know what he did. Do you remember what he did 10 years ago? God might forgive us, but that doesn't mean that he's not also trying to teach us to grow, to bring us to maturity in Christ. And yet, despite the obvious effects of their terrible errors, God is determined to bless Jacob. And so it is, as we move on into uh, chapter 28, that on the way to Haran, as Jacob is running away, in this random place, God meets Jacob. 
Jacob stops for the night as the sun is going down. He finds a rock for a pillow. He lays down to sleep and he dreams. And as he dreams, God appears to him. In his dream, Jacob sees a stairway, a stairway from the earth reaching up to heaven. And on the stairway are the angels going up and down. And above the stairway at the very top is God. It's a picture of the fact that though God is in heaven and Jacob is on earth, and though they are in a sense separated, yet God is still ministering to Jacob through his servants, through his angels. From his position at the top of the stairway, God speaks directly and personally to Jacob, and he says in verse 13, I am the Lord of your uh, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God reiterates to Jacob the promises he made to Jacob's grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac. It's a promise of worldwide blessing that through Jacob's offspring, God would bless the world. God would put the world right. But there's another promise here too. It's a promise that, was, that God had made to Abraham and Isaac too. But it's a promise that seems to be especially relevant for Jacob. In verse 15, God says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob might be forgiven for despairing about what was going on in his life. He might be forgiven for thinking that he would never see any of what God had promised He was running away from home. He was running away from his murderous brother. He was even running away from the inheritance that he tried so hard to get. He was running away from the land that he'd he'd tricked his brother out of receiving. But God says, I'll be with you. I'll bring you back. I won't forsake you. There's no doubt that Jacob had an extraordinary one-off experience at Bethel. The appearance of God. But despite that, God says no matter what happens from here, no matter where Jacob goes, God will be with him. God tells Jacob, I'll be with you wherever you go. Not just here, not just at Bethel. But wherever. And I think it's one of the great truths of the Bible, that if we belong to Jesus, wherever we go, wherever we are, God is with us. Whatever we're running away from, whatever the circumstances of our life, ugly or beautiful, God is with us. Where are you now? If Christ is in you, If you are in Christ, God is with you wherever you go. Are you at the end of your life facing the reality of death and disease? If you're in Christ, 
God is with you. Are you at the end of school or university trying to work out what's next? Where do I go from here? If you're in Christ, God is with you. Are you just starting out in marriage or just starting a family, starting a new job? If you're in Christ, God is with you. Are you facing unemployment? If you're in Christ, God is with you. Are you cut off from your family by division and bitterness? If you're in Christ, God is with you. Are you suffering the effects of terrible mistakes and terrible choices and terrible sins? If you're in Christ, God is with you. I was uh, reading the story the other day of a man who became a Christian. He was a drug addict, a cocaine addict, I think it was. So not just, not just soft drugs, but really hard drugs. He, he, be, he became a Christian. And as he became a Christian, he realised that he had to own up to some of the things that he'd done. He had to face up to the consequences of his sins. He handed himself in the police station. He was put in prison. And he said, I've never experienced so much love and care as I experienced from that church for all those years that I was sitting in prison. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're in Christ, God is with you. Are you alone? If you're in Christ, God is with you. Do you have no friends in the world, no one you can turn to? If you're in Christ, God is with you. Jesus said to his disciples, even as he left them to go back to the Father, behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So despite appearances to the contrary, despite suffering the immediate consequences of his sin, God confirms to Jacob his commitment to do what he's promised, to be with Jacob and to never forsake him. But in the second half of this passage, uh, in chapter 28, we see Jacob's response to God. In the first part of that response, Jacob responds to the place, this uh, remarkable this remarkable place where he has this encounter with God. God will be with Jacob, but there's still no denying that something special happened uh, here at Bethel. Jacob wakes up after his dream and he responds to that straight away. He says in verse 16, surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't aware of it. He's actually terrified by what he's experienced, as you might imagine. Uh, And he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jacob sets up a stone, the stone that he was sleeping on. Uh, He he sets it up as a memorial and he calls this place Bethel, which means the house of God. Jacob's taken with this place because something remarkable has happened here. Jacob met God. That is... An astonishing thing. It's remarkable to meet the Prime Minister uh, of Australia, but this is even better than that. So Malcolm was here, wasn't he, on Friday? I don't know if anyone popped into uh, wherever he was going and uh, 
took the opportunity to venerate uh, <laughs> and uh, sh- you know, show your appreciation to Malcolm. Uh, and, but maybe you bumped into him uh, and perhaps he said some words to you. Uh, perhaps he took one of those public transport selfies with you uh, or something like that. But as great as that would be, as exciting as that would be and as much of a mention as that would get on uh, Facebook or whatever conversations uh, you're in, rubbing shoulders with the Prime Minister is one thing, but rubbing shoulders with God is something else. Who's ever done that? <laughs> who has that? Who has that you know, on their Facebook page? The selfie with God? Since Adam and Eve had rejected God and tried to push God out of the world by doing things their own way, God had been far off. Where is he? Where's God? They'd walked with God in the Garden of Eden. But now God was far off. God had appeared to Abraham and now he appears here to Jacob as well. And it's reminiscent of... I suppose, of that intimacy, that closeness that Adam and Eve had had before the world was plunged into chaos. God was with Jacob all the time, but God seemed so much nearer here at Bethel. And yet even still, there's something intangible about it. After all, it's a dream, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not physical, And it's just there for a moment. It lasts a night. He wakes up and it's gone. Jacob's experience of God leaves us longing for more. For a longer meeting, a more tangible meeting with God. And that meeting with God came when Jesus himself, the Son of God, came into our world. He took on flesh, descended into the muck and the mess of our world, and became one of us. He met us. So it's entirely fitting that when Jesus did come into our world, he used this dream and this experience of Jacob to describe why he had come. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 1. If you've got a Bible still uh, there, flick to the New Testament, to the the last Gospel, John chapter 1. In John chapter 147, uh, John is telling the story of how some of the disciples, they met Jesus and they wanted Nathaniel to meet Jesus as well, one of the other uh, disciples. They wanted Nathaniel to, to, to meet Jesus. The guy that they found, the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament. And as Nathaniel goes with these other disciples to seek Jesus out, John tells us, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. How did, you, how did you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Just as Jacob saw heaven opened and angels 
ascending and descending on this stairway to heaven, Jesus tells Nathaniel that he'll see heaven open, but the angel's descending not on a stairway, but on Jesus Christ himself, on the Son of Man. Jesus becomes this stairway, this bridge between people and God. How do we meet God? How do we get back to God when God is far off because of our sin and our rebellion against him? How do we get back to God? It's not through dreams and visions. It's not through a special encounter in the middle of the night in some random place in the middle of nowhere. It's through the Son of God, God himself coming down to us, becoming one of us, making his home among us, putting our sin to death on the cross being raised to life and ascending to God in heaven. That's how we meet God, through Jesus Christ. Well, I wonder if you've met God. You might know of God, you might know lots about God, but have you met him? Have you met him in Jesus Someone told me uh, once that they'd always known so much about God. They'd grown up uh, and they'd always heard about God. They'd known their theology. They'd known their theology inside out, back to front. But Jesus was a stranger to them. They didn't know who he was. They didn't love him. They didn't delight in God. They had no taste for the joys of heaven. So what did they do? Well, they read one of the Gospels. They read the Gospel of John. And in the pages of the Gospel, in the pages of this book, they met God. They met Jesus Christ. Someone they'd always heard about, but never met. You've got to meet my friend. It's this guy called Jesus. Yes, yes, yeah, I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure I'll bump into him one time. But in the pages of the Bible, they met him. And God spoke to them as clearly as God spoke to Jacob here in this dream. And God met them even more tangibly, even more concretely, even more really than that God met Jacob in that strange place in the middle of nowhere. In Jesus, God has come to us. He's come to us when we were never seeking him. He's come down to meet us so that we don't have to climb up to meet him. Jacob flees for his life, but even as he flees, God runs to him, meets him, promises to be with him and promises to bring him back. And Jacob responds uh, by setting up that memorial in that place where he met God. But Jacob responds in another way as well. He responds with this vow. He says in verse 20, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up will be uh, God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. 
What are we to make of that vow? Is Jacob being godly here? Or is something else going on? It sounds a little bit like Jacob's trying to make a deal with God, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like he's saying, well, God, if you do your bit, if you look after me, if you give me all the goodies, I'll make you my God. I'll do you a favour, I'll make you my God. In other words, it sounds like Jacob's vow is more arrogance than genuine faith. But notice that Jacob is not demanding something of God here that God hasn't already promised. Jacob's actually just reciting back to God what God has only just said. God promised to be with him. God promised to keep him safe. God promised to bring him back. God promised not to forsake him. You see, this chapter isn't about Jacob's commitment to God, but about God's commitment to Jacob. It's not about Jacob coming to God, but about God seeking Jacob out. Jacob never comes to God in this chapter. He doesn't go, wow, things are going badly here. I better better find God. He doesn't do that. This chapter is about God's determination to bring Jacob to himself. You see, Jacob was the kind of guy, he was a a ladder-building kind of guy. He was the kind of guy who would make the ladder. If he had to get to God, he'd make the ladder. If he had to get the blessing, he'd make sure that it happened, even if it took lies and deceit. But now Jacob is nowhere. He's literally nowhere, someplace. He's running away, he's fleeing through life, he's got nothing left. He doesn't run to God. God comes to him. God reaches his hand out to him and he says, you're mine. God says, I'll do this. I'll look after you. I'll bring you back. I won't forsake you. And for the first time in his life, just for a moment, Jacob seems to get it. Jacob isn't saying, if you do all these things, God, that I demand. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to do all those things and I've got nothing, I've got nothing to give to you, nothing to bring to you, if you're going to do that, then you're my God. (laughs) Take take me. You're going to do it anyway. Take my life. Take everything I have. Jacob isn't making a deal with God. What Jacob is doing is grasping the gospel. He's grasping the good news that we don't make our way to God, but that God comes to us. He's grasping the good news that God has come to us, rescued us, saved us, given up his own son. And only then do we respond. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and that he gave up his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We sang it before, didn't we, in that song? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless come to you for grace. We see We see the cross and we say to God, if that's what you've done for me, then I'm yours.
if that's what you've done for me, then you're my God and everything that I have belongs to you. The good news is not that we can fight to get to God. The good news is that God has come to us. He's reached out his hand. He's taken hold of us and he said, you're mine. And all we have to do is say, yes, you're my God. You always were. (laughs) But I've only just realized it. Well, maybe you're like Jacob And after striving for so long, you finally came to the end of yourself. You found yourself nowhere in no place with nothing. And you realized that in Jesus, God had done it all. And you said to God, well, God, here I am. If that's you, then praise the Lord. Keep living by the promises of God. Keep living by the power of God by the power of what God has already done in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're not like Jacob yet. Maybe you're still striving, still trying to make that ladder, trying to build the staircase that gets to God. If that's you, then please realise that like Jacob, the only ladders that we can build go down rather than up. They end up getting us further away from God rather than closer. The only way that we can get to God is by God coming down to us in Jesus Christ. Please realize, whoever you are, that our only hope is in Jesus, the Son of God, who came down from heaven so that God might bring us to Himself. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your amazing grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you that uh, even while we were sinners, you died for us, that Christ died for us uh, to bring us to you. Lord, thank you that even while we were not seeking you, you were seeking us, that you devised a plan to bring back to yourself uh, all your people, Lord, thank you that we don't need to climb up into heaven, but that Christ has come down, that we might know you truly. And Father, we thank you for those of us who have recognized that and received in the gospel your great and precious promises. Lord, those of us who've laid hold of those things by faith, Lord, thank you that we can know that we truly belong to you that you are with us even now, that wherever you go, even to the, wherever we go, even to the farthest ends of the earth, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Lord, thank you that we know that you hold us by our hand and you will never forsake us. But one day bring us into the brightness of your glory when Jesus returns. Lord, for those of us who haven't recognised that yet, Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and call those people to yourself. 
Lord, we ask that in all these things that your mercy and compassion would be manifest and that you would be glorified on account of it. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.